And while we're turning there, I'll go ahead and just pray. Jesus, it's a good morning. It's a, it's a really good morning. And that doesn't mean that everything in it is perfect. But uh, this is the day that you've made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And uh, we're amongst brothers and sisters here. We're amongst friends. And you, some, somebody here may not know anybody else in the room. But uh, as trite as it could sound, I mean it from the bottom of my heart before you, Lord, that uh, we're amongst friends here, even if they're friends that you don't know personally. Uh, as we're about to get into the word, I just pray that we would just enjoy it. Uh, there, this, this, it's so exciting to know what you've spoken to your people and what you have for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Cool. So, we are continuing our study through the, the week preceding Jesus' death, and we've called this the visitation. This sermon series follows what it's like when Jesus, who is the anticipated king, arrives in the capital of his kingdom. So he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which was supposed to be the fulfillment of a prophecy when the great king would come to the people, the sons of Israel, the sons and daughters of Israel. And so he finally arrives in the capital of his kingdom. And the irony is that everybody who should recognize him, acknowledge him, and revere him totally misses it. We've been in this sermon series, this is now for our third week, and this week we're going to be talking about the rejected Messiah. So it's important that we understand that when Jesus came, he was missed. He was not recognized, but more than that, he was rejected. He was declined. People did not want his leadership. We're going to be talking quite a bit about authority today, and that Jesus is one of authority. But there's also this sort of, uh, there's this irony that the leadership in place in Judea is in rebellion to Jesus, who's supposed to be their high superior. Now, they treat him with contempt, and they accuse him of taking authority that doesn't belong to him. And the deep irony is, is that's exactly what they are doing. Now, the, the Bible, from time to time, has this uh, sort of mode of when, when the people of the world get too big for their britches and starts throwing their minuscule weight around, then God, in his holy sort of way, in his righteous sort of way, will say, okay, I can do that too. I will throw my weight around. Job, if you're going to question whether or not I'm a good God, then I will ask you all these questions that you would not be able to answer. There, there's, this, there's this interesting psalm. If you'd like, you can turn there, but I know I've already asked you to turn to Mark 11, so you don't have to. This is Psalm 2, and it's actually closely correlated to the psalm that we read this morning. This psalm talks about the greatest among humanity, kings, authorities, and them getting too big for their britches and thinking that they are running things on their own, that they can attain whatever it is that they want, that they have no need for God. And the mode comes in here where God looks down and he thinks how puny, how wicked. I'm just going to read it. 
It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's Jesus, saying, let us bust their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. That's God. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jesus. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. I'm going to say that again because it's super important for this passage today. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this is not our passage this morning, but I want us to understand today that this is the framework in which our world exists. We are, are people who are uh, living and enjoying a level of autonomy. We do what we want, especially in this culture, especially in this country. We do what we want. We grab what we want and we amass for ourselves. Now, when we do that, and we don't acknowledge God as the ultimate authority, this is the mode in which we install ourselves. When we throw our weight around, God says, I can do that, and your arms are too short to box with me. Intense. I know it's intense, but this is probably the most important thing to understand about this passage in light of the gospel as we know it today. This is Old Testament, and in order for us to best understand this, we need to realize this concept. God looks down at the rebellion of humanity, and he is offended by it. And who does he look to about what to do about it? He looks to his son. He says, anything that you want to do with these people, you have it. You can do that. And the warning that the psalmist gives to the kings and the wise is, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. Give, give worship and, and submit adoration to God's son, but he's, because he's the one who decides what will happen to us. And then there's this weird thing, because the whole psalm is super intense, but then it ends with this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So is this son of God? Is he a harsh judge authority? Or is he a protector? Now, for those of us who are familiar with Jesus, we would comfortably say he is both. So let's keep that in mind as we get into the passage this week. Mark 11, starting in verse 27. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll parse it out together. 
And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Continuing through uh, chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. That's our passage this morning. With regard to the calendar of Jesus' life, this passage takes place in the final week of his earthly ministry that will end with his crucifixion. This is commonly referred to as the Passion Week. On the opening of the Passion Week, which is Sunday, that was Palm Sunday when Jesus has this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and people are waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save now. Finally, our king is coming to us. Save now. That was the beginning of the week. And then Monday happens, and that's when Jesus comes into the temple, a place that by his divine authority belongs to him. But understand something, he does not work in the temple. And he comes in there and he starts kicking out all these people that those who run the temple permitted to be there. He drives out the money changers. He drives out those selling sacrifice animals. He kicks them out. And he's staying, seems, every single night in a city called Bethany. It's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So consistently from Sunday, Monday, and now this passage probably takes place on Tuesday, he comes into Jerusalem, he does his working, and then he leaves Jerusalem. He walks two miles, goes, spends the night in Bethany, perhaps at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. We're not sure. And then he comes back into Jerusalem. So he's coming back into Jerusalem from Bethany today in this passage, which would probably be Tuesday. Just yesterday, in, in this time frame, 
he has ruffled the feathers of those who run the temple. Now again, Jesus has this cosmic divine authority. The temple is supposed to be the house of Yahweh, the house of the Lord. And because Jesus is the son, that's his house. But as far as those who run the temple are concerned, the ones entrusted to maintain the house of the Lord, Jesus is a stranger off of the street. And what right does he have to come in here, in our house, if you will, and kick out the people that we said are okay to be there? It's not surprising that the very next morning when Jesus comes back into town, these folks have a bone to pick with him. But this is super important because there's three offices of people represented here. And we'll get to those three individual offices in a second. But first, I want to talk about this. A lot of times we read these passages and uh, we get the precursor of the story and we figure out that somebody's coming up against Jesus. And we kind of read all of the different names and they kind of all meld together. All we know is that they're enemies of Jesus. We hear Pharisee, we hear Sadducee, we hear chief priests, we see scribes, we see elders, all of these things. And it kind of just goes over our head. We just understand and register that these are people who do not approve of Jesus. They're the religious elite, if you will. But for this passage, we, actually, we have to actually understand the three offices who are represented here. Uh, and, and I'll explain why before I break them down. Mark 8.31 is the first time Jesus to his disciples foretells his death. Now, he's been referring to his sacrifice for the majority of his ministry. And when he was announced by John, John says that he's... Uh, the lamb that was slain, you know, and that means that, that Jesus is going to be sacrificed. It's a reference to his death. But Mark 8.31 is the first time Jesus foretells his crucifixion to his apostles. And this is what he says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's Mark 8.31. Jesus will foretell his death to his disciples three times between Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 11. And every time, Jesus will give certain details. Sometimes he'll give uh, some fewer details and summarize. Other times he will introduce new ones. Later on in Mark 11, he says that they will turn him over to the Gentiles. So that's a kind of a fourth player involved, and that will come into play later. But this one here is interesting because he says elders, chief priests, and the scribes. And we know that we can listen to that and we're like, okay, yeah, Jesus' enemies. Yeah, they're going to turn him over to Jesus' enemies and they're going to bring him to the cross. We know the story, so we kind of just cycle through it. But in Mark eleven twenty-seven, that's the first time all three of these offices come together to conspire against Jesus. And so if we're reading the book of Mark the way Mark wants us to, we should be like, uh-oh, the recipe is complete. Now, you, who are the scribes, chief priests, and the elders? Um, the scribes, some would, would say Mark outlines them as the primary constant enemies of Jesus. They've been in and out of Jesus' story since about Mark 2. These guys are 
are officials of the law. And when I say law, I'm not just talking about the scriptures, I'm talking about the actual civil law. We don't have scribes today, but I don't want you to think that they're just people who transcribe. They're people with written authority. So they're kind of the combination of a notary and a paralegal. And even though their expertise is in the Holy Scripture, that's not, it, it doesn't mean that they were very, very religious people. Their job was about being experts in the law. And so people would go to them and they would, they would write certificates of marriage or certificates of divorce even, or people would go to them and uh, like a paralegal, the scribe would let somebody know whether or not something is in accordance or contrary to the law. These are legal authorities. They've popped up several times in Jesus' ministry, and specifically, scribes from Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem, but these people, scribes from Jerusalem, have been popping into Jesus' story and checking in on his ministry since Mark chapter 2. And they've been sent there on behalf of the, the religious and cultural capital to pass judgment on whether or not what Jesus is doing is right or wrong. They were the ones who said that, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's casting out demons, but it's because he's doing so in the power of Satan himself. They passed judgment. That was their job. Scribes. They were legal authority. So that's one of the offices. The second office is the chief priests. Now, these folks have not met Jesus yet. By, by Mark 11, it's the first time the chief priests meet Jesus. They're familiar with his ministry, and probably the reason the scribes were sent to Jesus is because the chief priests heard about it. But these chief priests, they work in the temple in Jerusalem. They run the temple. Now, the first time the chief priests meet Jesus, it was the Monday of Passion Week, the week when Jesus drove out the money changers I'm going to read that passage because it introduces that, that second constituency of Jesus' enemies, the chief priests. This is Mark 11:18. After uh, Jesus has driven out the temple, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. 11:18 says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When we hear that in 1118, we should think, that's two out of the three. That's two out of the three coming together. And what does it say in this passage? That they're conspiring to destroy Jesus. They want to vanquish him. They want to kill him. They're looking for a way to do so. Now, the scribes at this point, they, they may be looking at the chief priest, go, see, dude, this is what I, we've been telling you. We've been watching this guy's ministry from the beginning, and he's been doing crazy things the whole time. But now he's in our house. Now he's in the temple, and now he's crossed the chief priests. And so the chief priests and the scribes, they conspire together. That's two out of the three. But then, in, in chapter 11, verses 27 through the end, it introduces this third office. It's the elders. If the scribes were the legal authority, I would say that the chief priests were the religious authority, and we could say that the elders would be the social authority. Elders is just a general term. It's, it's, 
But elders amongst the Israelite people, and, and by this time in history, the Jewish people, are just men who are advanced in age. And age was viewed with honor and respect and achievement. So even way back in the law of Moses, when Moses would address the people, he would call whom? The elders of each tribe. Now, maybe, maybe an elder in, in Israel could also be a priest. Maybe the elder, an elder in Israel could also be a scribe, but it doesn't have to be. It just comes with the age. And what the elders say, they pass down. Now, uh, I know I'm giving you a lot of technical stuff, but it's fascinating. Um, you guys remember a couple weeks ago when uh, Jesus' disciples were eating and Jesus' challengers came out and they said, uh, I, think, I think there were Pharisees who said this to Jesus. They said, hey, how come your, your disciples don't ceremonially wash their hands as the elders tell us to do? The traditions of our elders. So the elders, this social authority, they, they would pass down traditions and they would raise up the next generation, hopefully in accordance to the Lord, and that was what was understood. That's the third office. Here in Mark 11, the recipe is complete. The three come together. If we're reading the passage the way Mark wants us to, when we hear this, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, alarm bells should be going off, and we should be thinking death. This is not like every other time when people are just trying to oppose Jesus. They're sniffing for blood. The scribes and the chief priests the day before had just decided that they want to destroy Jesus and they need to find a way to. And now in this passage, the three folks come together and they are going to do that. This is the beginning of the end. And of course, for Jesus, who rose on the third day, it's not his ultimate end, but this is the beginning of the last week of his earthly life. Now they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, yes, they are saying, hey man, yesterday you made a mess you come to our house, you make a mess, but there's something deeper and more sinister underneath the surface. Now, remember, I said that they, these, these three offices, they come together because they want to kill Jesus. This question is tied to that. Now, in the Old Testament, it said that blasphemers were deserving of death. Do not permit the blasphemer to live. You should stone them with stones. Uh, but by Jesus' day, religious scholars had examined and expanded every aspect of the law, and they'd made a wider, broader understanding of each sin. Assuming undue authority was something that they considered blasphemy, because it's you putting yourself into a, a higher level that God did not say, therefore it's blasphemy, therefore it's deserving of what? Death. They're trying to catch Jesus in a capital offense. In fact, about 150 years after this story, uh, Jewish scholars will compile uh, a list of these expanded laws that they call the Mishnah, and explicitly it says in there, if somebody takes undue authority, they are a blasphemer. Um, now, Jesus asks them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. This is great because in this story, power 
changes hands back and forth. You see that these big three, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they come in with their chests, chests puffed up, throwing their weight around at Jesus. They made the first move. They come and they challenge Jesus, blatantly asking him, are you a blasphemer? Who gives you the right to do this? They come in power. But here, power changes hands. It seems like Jesus sort of nonchalantly just like, hmm? Oh, uh, you know what? Answer me this. Do you, do you understand how crazy that is? Jesus is this uninstalled authority figure. He's in their house, and they ask him a question, and he's not interested in answering their question. He goes, you know what? Actually, no, you answer me this. It would probably be appropriate if anyone around the temple just kind of like a, ooh, you know? And he, so he says, I'm going to ask you one question, and then I'll answer you. Yeah, so, so just a sidebar here. Jesus will always make room for questions. And it, sometimes the answers are, take a little bit of waiting through in order to find them, but Jesus is not somebody who hides questions, but he'll first be after our heart. Oftentimes, when somebody questions Jesus, which is different than asking Jesus a question, do you understand? When somebody questions Jesus, he'll get to the heart first before he answers them. And that's what he's doing here. He's offering this opportunity for them to, and to get the answer that they're seeking. But first, they need to lay down their defenses. Now, what Jesus has done here, asking them a question, has, all, has also deep cultural significance because this rhetorical device, somebody comes and asks a question and that person who is questioned then tops their question with another question, that was a rhetorical practice between debating rabbis. So Jesus is just standing up and saying, hey, you know what, I'm not inferior to you. You wanna talk shop, let's talk shop. I'll, I'll go full rabbi on you. And the, and the question that he asks is so brilliantly crafted because it's not it's not just a challenge of their arrogance. He puts them in a place that if they answer that question truthfully, they will have already answered their own question. So it says, it's a sidebar question, right? He says, all right, well, let's remove the heat off of it a little bit. Let me just ask you, what about John the Baptist? He was baptizing people, right? Uh, was that something that he did by heaven's authority, or was that just something that he did for himself, or did some people tell him to do that? Now, if, if they answer that truthfully, like this passage says, people all around, before the Romans had, excuse me, before Herod had John the Baptist beheaded, people all around agreed that this man is a prophet, that he's from God. Now, if these big three, if they answer this truthfully and say that, John baptized people by the authority of God, then they will have verified everything that he says. Remember, a prophet, when he speaks on behalf of the Lord, everything he says has to be true. So if someone's a prophet, they're not a liar. And if, and, and if they admit that John was a prophet from God, then that submits everything that he ever taught to be true. Now, uh, John said some crazy things, but he, the main part of his ministry was to identify who the Messiah was, to identify who Jesus was, and of course, those messages are one and the same. 
And this is from a different gospel, but these, this is also a record of these real-life events. So in John 1, 34, this is a sermon, if you will, or a prophecy of John the Baptist. He's talking to some people who are just walking with him. He's walking along the Galilee, and this is how the guy talks. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So the whole reason John baptized was to reveal the Messiah to Israel. Okay? And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And to get it even more clear, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So did, did John the Baptist baptize people by heaven's authority or man's authority? If they say heaven, then he says, oh, did you ever hear the thing that he said when he pointed at me and he said, I testify that this is the son of God? So uh, that, that's the authority by which I do these things. That's what gives me the right. Jesus is brilliant. He's very slick. He knows what he's doing. Okay, so Jesus asks this question. They, he's waiting for them to answer. So they huddle up. It's very creepy. And they discuss it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? So they're strategizing, right? They're, they're playing chess. They're going, if we move here, then he will move here, and so on and so forth. This is a debate. But shall we say from man? But they're afraid because everybody around them said that John was a real prophet. Now, look at the difference. That's, that's not a parallel thought process. If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if, should we say from man? And they don't come up with the second move there. It's Mark that fills in and says, but they wouldn't say that because they were afraid of the people. So they, they give a cop out, right? Uh, we don't know. That's a lie. That's what we call a lie. Because they thought they knew. If they would have answered that honestly and said, from man, yeah, people would have gotten really upset with them. But that's really what they thought. So here is not just an, an avoiding of the question, it's just a blatant lie. And also, they were wrong. The correct answer is from heaven, for those of you who are taking notes. Um, so that's a cop-out. They say, we do not know. It's a lie. And so Jesus says, okay, I won't tell you by what authority I do these things then. So you're, you're not even going to answer me. I'm not going to answer you. See the power shifting back and forth? Who has the power now? Jesus is totally jettisoned to this conversation, and he's going to do so more and more. Um, we're, we move straight through the chapter break, and we start in chapter 12, verse 1, because this is the same scenario. But at this point, the conversation has moved into Jesus' hands. They come to him accusing him. They're like, you come into our house? And Jesus kind of has a you come into my house sort of mentality. And he goes, you know what, I'm going to tell you a story. Like, we're not here to listen to your stories, Jesus. But he, he does. He begins to speak to them in parables. Now, I know we, we think about parables as uh, like symbolic stories, and most of Jesus' parables are. 
But the word parable, the, the prefix peri just means beside. So Jesus is going to, you know what, I'm going to teach you in a sidebar. I'm going to add a little distance from the hot topic we're discussing. I'm going to make this a little bit either more accessible or less accessible based upon what Jesus is trying to do. So he says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. We have the main character and we have the setting, but in reality, we actually have so much more. Now, what Jesus did there in his culture is similar to if, if I said, there once was a republic, land of the free, home of the brave with a star-spangled banner and a guy who lived there in a big white house. You guys know what I'm talking about because you're familiar with, with our culture. If I use those buzzwords, you know that I'm talking about the United States of America and this is a story about the president. Jesus has done a similar thing here, but it's lost on us if we're not familiar with the word. But the big three, his opposers, are scripture experts. This reference is not lost on them. I'm going to read to you guys out of Isaiah 5. It's... It's a beautiful part of Isaiah. It's actually called uh, the Song of the Beloved's Vineyard. It's a song that Isaiah wrote. It says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes but it yields wild grapes. I could read that entire song and we could talk about it forever, but it, uh, we don't have time for that, guys. I know you guys want it, but there's no time. Um, this passage goes on to say that there was a wall around the garden. Jesus has used all of those buzzwords to refer to this, to this passage. So that begs the question is, what is this passage about? Well, it tells us in verse seven because Isaiah translates the meaning of his own song Isaiah 5, verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the, Lord, of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. Isaiah 5 is a scathing rebuke on God's people. At that time, God's people are divided. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But Isaiah here is clear that this is about all of God's people. Israel, and Judah. God built this place and tend to it carefully. God did everything in his power to make these people flourish. He put a wall around them. He protected them. He set a watchtower in the midst of it, which symbolizes strength and also vigilance. He did everything he could, but yet the garden itself didn't bear good fruit. These people weren't good, godly, glorifying people, instead of righteousness, the righteousness that God sowed in that garden reaped only bloodshed from them. This is a scathing rebuke on the people of God. And do you think it's a passage that these big three forgot about? No, sir. When Jesus gives the main character of his, of his parable and the setting, they immediately know He's talking about Israel. But Jesus kind of does his own rendition of this song. He says, and so this man, he built the garden, 
Uh, he set walls around it. He set up a watchtower. This is a vineyard. People are hearing all these buzzwords, and it's like, okay, he's talking about Israel. Then Jesus' rendition diverges from Isaiah 5. He says this. He, he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And you see, there, Jesus is already insinuating that the authority that these big three have is temporary at best. They're stewards. They're on borrowed authority, borrowed time. A lease is temporary. Tenants don't themselves have authority over the land. And so Jesus is insinuating that God has entrusted his people just to tenants. The authority in charge, the leadership, the legal authority, the scribes, the religious authority, the chief priests, the social authority, the elders, they're just people that God left there to look after things for him. Simply temporary. Jesus' parable continues. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. All you guys need to understand from that is that's, that's regular practice. If somebody owned a land and they leased it to people, they, they had a right to some of the, the fruit. In fact, uh, the tenants were given, I think, five years to produce some fruit before the owner of the land could come and say, hey, you know what? You owe me some of the fruit from the land, not just the lease itself, but some of the fruit. This is, this is standard practice. But what's wrong about it is in verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and they, him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. These servants that Jesus is talking about are the prophets that God sent to his people to correct them. To get, to get the vineyard to bear the right kind of fruit, to prune the vineyard, if you will. And it wasn't the garden that rejected these, these servants. It was the tenants. The people, the man who owned the vineyard, put in charge to tend it, who's supposed to want the well-being of the vineyard. Translation, it's always been God's leadership that has rejected the prophets that he sent. The writer of Hebrews talks about the bloody history of God's people and their treatment of his true prophets. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And when Jesus takes his parable here, it's striking a nerve with these big three. Because they just talked about a prophet of God, John the Baptist, who was rejected not by the people, but by the tenants, by the leadership, and he himself was beheaded. Maybe, maybe what's hitting these guys most is that Isaiah 5 was written by the prophet Isaiah, who tradition holds, tradition passed down by the elders, was sawn in two because of his ministry and what offense it was to the people at large. And so the religious authorities saw to it that he was sawn in half. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews talks about. Jesus is not shy about how indignant he is at his own people for killing, persecuting, abusing the prophets that he sent to help them. Uh, I, I want to read this passage, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on quickly thereafter. Matthew, uh, in chapter 23, verses 34 through 37, this is probably the same day as this Mark 11, 12 occurrence. It's probably the same day. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. bloody history of rejecting those that they were supposed to embrace and for whom they should have been grateful. Now, Jesus takes his parable to another level, starting in verse 6. He says that the man who planted the vineyard had a beloved son. Finally sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those in the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. There is one with greater authority than the tenants and even greater authority than the servants that the man sent to the vineyard, and that's the man's son. Because the son is the one who would inherit this vineyard, his authority in the vineyard is equal to his father's. So when he comes to the vineyard, it's with all supreme authority entirely. And the tenants should either be respectful or fearful. But instead they see an opportunity. This is the last one we need to take out. And if we take out this son, then we can be in charge. Then we're no longer tenants, then we're owners. And so they kill him. And Jesus asks, if they've killed the son and the tenants are still thriving, what is, what is the man going to do? The one who built the vineyard, what's he going to do? And Jesus answers his own question in Mark's depiction of it. He says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is saying that, look, the rebellion of humanity, the arrogance that we talked about in Psalm 2, God is not going to stand for that forever. It hits a peak once the son himself is rejected. Then God, the father, the man who built the vineyard, is not going to take any more. And he's going to take for himself what, what is his? God is going to take back the, his own people, the people of Israel, the people of the world. He's going to take them back to himself. And for those who were abusing their authority, he's going to send judgment upon them. And then Jesus refers to the psalm. He says, dude, don't you know that scripture says that the, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? He's saying, look, you guys need to understand 
God is not going to send his Messiah through the establishment. Rejection is an indicator that this person might be from God. In fact, the most important person that God will ever send will be the one most rejected. The stone which the builders rejected. Builders are an authority in a building, are they not? And they're the ones who deem like, uh, we don't need that stone. But it, but it was the cornerstone. It was the most important part of the building, but the authority figures mislabeled it and rejected it. And he says, but God, God will elevate the one who was greatly rejected. God will do that, and we will see it. It is marvelous in our eyes. Translation, Jesus is saying, you guys will reject me more than anybody else. You will band together, chief priests, elders, scribes. You will band together with your enemies, Pharisees who were the conservative elite and Sadducees who were the progressive liberals. You will band together. You will band together with your enemies. They will turn him over to the Gentiles who are the Romans who have the right to crucify. You will band together. You will do anything to, as much as possible, reject me. You will do anything to reject me. And I'm the most important one you're supposed to accept. That's what Jesus is telling them. This passage that Jesus references is Psalm 118, that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and it is mar the Lord has done this, it is marvelous in our eyes. It's from Psalm 118, a psalm that halfway through the psalm says, Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem by laying down palm branches were referencing this very same psalm. And Jesus is challenging these big three, saying, you are in the midst of the greatest time in history, and yet you're going to reject. Now, verse 12 says, they were seeking to arrest him, that's the big three, chief priests, scribes, and elders, but they feared the people. Same story. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They understood that this was about them because Jesus laid it on thick with references, maybe even pointed fingers, I'm not sure. But they just left him. They went away. They're like, all right, Jesus won that battle. We'll try again next time. And indeed they do. Now, this entire passage is about authority and rebellion, and Jesus is presented this, in this passage as the ultimate authority because, because he's the son. Now, God has always given limited authority, limited power, borrowed power to, to people like me, an official in the church, but I'm just a tenant. This is just a lease. I'm not in charge of you guys. I'm just here, and God asks me to take care of you if I can, and I will do so imperfectly. But the people in this passage, they took their position of authority and they said that this is all that matters. And any obstacle that comes before me, we will reject. So that way we can retain our own preeminence. So we can retain our own power, our own authority. Ironically accusing Jesus of usurping undue authority when they themselves were usurping undue authority calling Jesus a blasphemer, a blasphemer when they themselves were blaspheming the Son. Now, see, the difficult thing in this story is it's in here for us, and it's not because we are Jesus' friends and this is how Jesus 
one over his enemies. It's because we are the big three. And we have, we have leanings no matter who you are. You and I either want to be in charge of what is legally okay for us to do, social, what should be socially acceptable for us to do, what should be okay amongst religious circles. We, we see ourselves as the authorities in our own life. We say to ourselves, I say to myself, this is my life. I know what's best for me. Who are you to tell me? Who gives you the right? And I even treat God that way. We want the vineyard of our own lives. But Psalm 100 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. It also says, know that Yahweh, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his talking about property. We belong to God because he created us. The vineyard belonged to God because he created it, and that's what our position is. So we should serve the Lord and do so with gladness because we belong to him. Anything short of serving supreme God Yahweh and his son Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, anything besides that is rebellion. It's an insurgence. It's blasphemy. It's assuming undue authority. When we say what I say goes or what they say goes is more important than what he says. We're like the big three in this passage. Supremely rejecting the one that we should most accept. Now I can say for myself that I spend so much time digging in on myself and, and shopping and indulging myself. I'm getting to know myself better and better of what pleases me, what makes me the most happy, what do I enjoy the most, what kind of movies do I like. Instead of righteously digging in here into God's word, getting to know him more, knowing what gives him pleasure, what satisfies him. That's what I should be doing. Because there's this fact that Jesus is the authority over us. He's the son of God, and God is saying, Jesus, look at all those people down there. They're all rebelling against us. I'm sending you into that vineyard. Go ahead, you, you decide what you want to do with it, and I'll give that to you. Remember Psalm 2, God says, just ask. I'll give the nations over to you. Jesus, you are my son. And I'm in charge, and whatever you want, I will give to you. Now, this is not simply a, pa a sermon about us stepping in line unless we be squashed. Because the, our, our faith is not just a system of governance. If I was, if my only job here was to tell you guys, hey, Jesus is in charge, step in line, and respect the authority, respect the office of Jesus, I would be remiss, because this is not a gospel about a system. This is a gospel about a person. Yes, he is the authority. Yes, he is the son whom we should kiss, lest he be angry with us. But his position is part and parcel with who he is as a person, Remember, God the Father says, son, anything you want to do with these rebelling people, I'll do it. It's up to him. And who Jesus is as a person informs what he does with that authority. God says, what do you want to do with these people? What does Jesus do with that authority? He comes here, allows himself to be beaten, persecuted, murdered on the cross, on our behalf. 
Jesus' death is so painful and so wrathful and so egregiously guilty that it's worthy to pay for any, any sins that any of us have ever committed. And Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to take this death, and then if you want this in your account, I'll make it available to you, and I will give it to whomever I want. That's what Jesus does with his authority. Yes, he's the supreme authority, but what he does with that authority, it makes us come to him. It's Jesus' kindness that draws us in and leads us to repentance. And when Jesus was, at the end of this very week, he will be, t- he will be beaten and he will be nailed, spikes through his hands and feet against a wooden plank, and he will use his authority. He calls out to the Father, the top of his lungs, his enemies upon him, these arrogant tenants coming with puffed up chests and beating the Son, and he uses his authority. He uses his pull with the Father and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Excuse me, what? Don't you mean send the legions and flick these people out of existence? No, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus uses his pull with the Father to speak on our behalf. In the book of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, there's one God, that's the man who made the vineyard. He's the one in charge. And there is one mediator between God and man. And it's the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for us all. Guys, if we're believers today, Paul would also tell us, don't you know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You've been bought with the price. Guys, God deserves our service. We belong to him. Paul also says that we need to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, serving him every single day. That is our reasonable service. Because we belong to him. Kiss the son. Worship Jesus. Serve him with gladness because he made us and we are his. But if if you're not a Christian today and you're here or you're currently wrestling with Jesus' lordship over your life as a believer, know Jesus' office, his authority, but more deeper, dig in and know who he is as, as a person. Because his, just a sample of God's authority in the wrong hands is what these big three did. But with a greater authority in Jesus' pierced hands, he's instead forgiven us. And that's why, for those of us who are believers, are believers today. It's not just because he's in charge, it's because he loves us. And we love him. God exemplified his love in that while we were still wicked tenants, arrogant leases, he died for us to pay for our sins. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen? Let's pray, friends, and we'll do some worship. Father God, in this passage, we learned so much about you. You are powerful. You are not, meant, you are not to be tripled, trifled with. You are slick. And our arms are too short to box with you. 
even in an organized debate, you win. You jettison the conversation. But the, the sweetest thing about this is we know what we Gentiles and what we, we people do with authority. We lord it over people. But even the Son of Man, the Son, didn't come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. You use your authority to serve us. We love you. Thank you. We're not your friends. We're not the good guys. We're the bad guys. And yet still, you willingly mediate on our behalf. You use your pull with the Father Jesus to say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Accept my death as payment for their sins. Lord, for all of us here today, we struggle with your lordship, letting you be in charge of our lives. There are things that the Bible teaches that we scoff at and we think that the writers of your word were wrong or this doesn't apply to me. Please continue to have mercy on us, Lord, and save now. The things that we reject are tied to you, and you're the, you're the most important, most acceptable, greatest one that we should embrace. And thank you, God, that, man, it's, it's fearful to, to fall into the hands of the angry God, you know, that you are the rock, and if you fall on us, we are pulverized, crushed. But when we fall on you, we're, we're simply broken, and so, God, please uh, give us brokenness. Look on us with mercy and grace. And uh, let's love. Help us to love you as you have loved us. Because we're blessed if we take refuge in you. In Jesus' name, amen.